The scripture reading this morning is taken from John chapter 15, verses 9 through 14. John chapter 15, verses 9 through 14. This is located in the Pew Bible on page 956. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater joy... Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, again, we welcome you. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, it encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. It's good to have the Pendergraph family with us. It's wonderful to be able to worship and serve God together. Let's make sure that we get to know them and we get to know each other. Let's do our very best to be the family exactly the way God wants us to be. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce gives an allegorical story of a man who's the ghostly of a man, and he has a red lizard of lust that sits on his shoulder and whispers seductive words into his ear. An angel comes along one day and offers him that he could remove this lizard from his shoulders if he so wished. This was a very difficult decision for this ghostly of a man because he had grown to love this lizard of lust. Or maybe better yet, he loved lust but actually hated the lizard. And so there was a long discussion between these two about whether or not he would actually like the life that he had if the lizard was dead. But finally, after long discussion, he agreed to have that lizard removed. The angel took the lizard, broke its neck, and threw it to the ground. Immediately, the ghostly-like man was transformed into a real and solid man. He began to know and to experience a joy that he had never known. As a matter of fact, tears of joy and appreciation began to stream down his face. And the lizard? The lizard was transformed into a spectacular stallion. And he mounted the stallion. And he rode into his new life, a real life. C.S. Lewis was a masterpiece of a writer. And in that story, he shows us so much about what we sometimes believe. We sometimes believe that we ought to get rid of some things out of our life, but yet we're not convinced that we're going to like the life we find. Because after all, if I give up these things that I am convinced brings me joy, will there be any other thing to offer such joy? And in this allegory, he reminds us of the fact that actually the very things that we cling to in the name of fulfillment and joy and happiness are really the things that are destroying us. But because Satan works through deceptive ways, we don't see that. And this morning, we have had read for us a very powerful passage 
that helps us to see through all the deception of Satan. Do you remember in the Declaration of Independence, reading uh, through this, we see that he says that, uh, picking up just a few lines down, that we have certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Do you really believe that the pursuit of happiness is a right that we have and a right that we should demand? And maybe we should stop and question the very word happiness itself. As we mentioned before, and from time to time, as we study the topic of joy throughout this year, we will be reminded of the fact that happiness, as we use it today, is a word that is much different than how it is oftentimes used in the Scripture. You see, if we were to look at this word that is sometimes translated happiness out of the Scriptures, the Greek word would be used 58 times in the New Testament. Sometimes that word is translated happiness or happy. Other times that word is translated blessedness or blessed. You see, that gives us insight to really what God was speaking about was not something that was superficial or things that was on the surface of life. He's talking about things that produce a genuine joy, a genuine fulfillment in life. But yet, as we use the word today in 2007 of happiness, we usually speak of things that are circumstantial. Things that happen, that produce the emotion of happiness. As a matter of fact, the etymology of the word happy or happiness itself literally can be traced back to the word lucky. It's the idea of a circumstance that just happened to take place today and we say, wow, I was lucky. I didn't think about seeing you. I'm glad I ran into you. Well, you see that happenstance produced an emotion of joy or happiness, but God is not speaking. And keep in mind, there's nothing wrong with those happenstances. But what we need to learn is that when we understand in the Scriptures the joy that God wants us to experience, it's deep, it's real, it's solid. It's something that we ought to find in life. And if we're going to be successful, where it really counts, we must find it. This morning, we're going to look into this text. And we're going to see the joy of the Lord. And we're going to see how this should and can affect our own joy. And then we're going to see the principle of how that joy can affect elders or even anyone that's in our life as we think about a tremendous day in the history of this congregation today. Let's look back to our text. In John, the 15th chapter, notice verse 9. And in verse 9, there are three key phrases. And it sounds like each one is going to be parallel. But when we get to the third one, it takes a little bit of a spin that really drives home an important message for us. So as we think about this, read again verse 9. He says, As the Father loved me... I also loved you, abide in my love. Now, let me give you a couple of things by introduction to this text. One, you see how many underlinings, underscores there are on the screen this morning. I did that simply for emphasis' sake. I underlined every phrase that had to do with love and joy in these few verses right here. Isn't it amazing how many of the phrases deal with love and joy? Why was this such a heavy topic to Jesus at this particular time? 
Do you remember that this was just before he went to the cross? You remember in John the 13th chapter, which was pretty much the same setting as what we're studying this morning. At the end of John the 13th chapter, Jesus was trying to prepare them for the fact that he would die that he would be resurrected, that he would uh, also, though, ascend back into heaven. And so they're going to see some horrific scenes over the next few hours. They're going to go through a new type of life where Jesus is no longer shoulder to shoulder with them, but now he's reigning up in heaven. He's trying to prepare them for this. And as you can imagine, they begin to be sad. As a matter of fact, Peter begged him, I'll go with you. I'll give my life to go with you. And remember, that's where he said, no, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And then it's in that setting, you can imagine everybody being broken hearted. It's in that setting that Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions, for not so I would have told you. And, and so it's in that setting that he's trying to comfort them. And what's interesting is as we study John the 13th chapter, the 14th, the 15th, and the 16th chapter, there's the reoccurring theme of peace, love, and joy. Jesus is continually telling them about the peace that they can have during this troublesome time they're about to go through. The love that they ought to know that God has never stopped offering to them, even during this difficult time they're about to go through. And the joy that they can experience... Even during this difficult time, remember Jesus even referred to the time of the cross in Hebrews, uh, the 12th chapter referred to it as the joy that was set before him. What a powerful teaching. Now, this is kind of sidelined, but it's too good to pass up on. When you go to Galatians, the fifth chapter, and you see the fruit of the Spirit, you remember at least three of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, peace, and joy. And do you know that when we read these promises of love, peace, and joy in John 13, 14, 15, and 16, they are almost always in the setting of Jesus promising, when I do leave you behind, you won't be alone. The Father is going to send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit to you. You see, the Holy Spirit has always been one that has brought love, joy, and peace into the lives of individuals. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And so with that in mind, let's look at this text of a very beautiful study that the truth is the passage is very, very simple. The complicated part is applying this to our life and not allowing Satan's deception to get into our way of making this a very uh, description of our life itself. Notice these three phrases again out of nine. One, he says, as the Father loved me. Jesus is talking to the apostles and he says, wow. The Father in heaven has really, really loved me. Now notice this. I also have loved you. The Father's loved me, and I've taken that same love, and I've come to this earth, and I have loved you. Now you know what the the next phrase is going to be about us loving the Lord or us loving others. That would seem kind of more parallel in thought. But he takes a little bit of a spin here to make a point. Look at that third phrase in nine. Abide in my love. The Father's loved me, I've loved you. Now, the word abide literally means to dwell. Stay. Make a home. It it literally, by application, he's saying, make this your life. This isn't a happenstance. This isn't something that's emotional. This is something that literally is your life. Lord, what do you want my life to be? He says, abide in my love. 
Well, what is the love of Jesus? If, if that's where I'm supposed to make my home, where is the love of Jesus? You know, several of you probably, like myself yesterday, I saw a few of the high school students. Uh, they committed to certain colleges across the nation uh, to play football. And you know, one of the young men, they went to interview him about his selection and uh, congratulate him. He'd already made his statement and they went to congratulate him. And the very first thing that he stood so tall and proud, he had the biggest smile on his face. And, and he said, the first thing I want to do is thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Without him, I would be absolutely nothing. Now, that's awesome. But you know, words alone is not enough. In other words, for me to be willing to stand in a church audience or an audience to a national television, for me to be able to stand and say, Oh, I love the Lord. I love Jesus Christ. Is holla. If I do not have the life that is love. And that's where we come to the next verse. Look at 10 and see how love is described by God. And, and by the way, I'm not implying that that young man didn't have that. But... Notice in verse 10, he says, If you keep my commandments, Jesus is still speaking to the apostles, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Okay, now, you see this in imaginary screen with me. Father loves me, I loved you, and I want you to abide in my love. Okay, Lord, what is your love? He says, let me remind you, I abide, I make my home in my Father's love. And the way I do it is I keep my Father's commandments. What did Jesus do the whole time He was on this earth? He came to do the will of Him that sent Him. He went to the cross out of obedience. He came to keep the Father's commandments. And now what does He say? He says, you will abide in my love if you keep my commandments. Friends, that loyalty to the Word of God is so important. As a matter of fact, I think it really helps us to emphasize what it is when we think about Him saying keep instead of obey. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that there's a significant difference, but it just makes us think. Why did He say keep my commandments? Keep literally means to guard something, to not let anything escape. Have you ever thought about keeping God's commandments with that much carefulness? In other words, if, if you were a shepherd and you had a, a hundred sheep and it was your job to keep a hundred sheep, you would guard and make sure that nothing came in and violated or destroyed those sheep. You would also make sure that none of those sheep escaped. So that at the end of the day, you would be a good shepherd and you could say, I still have a hundred sheep. I've kept those sheep. Here, here is the will of God. Here are the commandments of Jesus Christ. Now the question is, if I say I love Jesus, the proof is whether or not I've kept these commandments. Have I made sure that none of these commandments escaped my attention and my obedience? Have I made sure that I've not violated any of these commandments? Now friends, I know and you know and God knows that we're not perfect. But God wants you and I to strive for per perfection. That doesn't take anything away from the grace and the mercy and the blood of Jesus. We'd have absolutely no hope without those things. But the fact is, if we want to abide in Jesus' love, 
We have to keep His commandments. Now, all of that is a stage. All that is a foundation of the very next verse. As a matter of fact, that's the way Jesus says it. If you look at verse 11, see how He then turns to him and says, These things I have spoken to you. In other words, He says, Now, I've talked to you about that understanding of abiding in my love because it's going to produce something wonderful in your life. Jesus is wanting something better. You know, it's just like the allegory where, where the lizard is thrown off and now the man knows something far better than what he ever expected. Jesus is teaching them here, if, if you'll just do it, you're going to have something so much greater. What is it? Look again at verse 11 there. He says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy... Now notice the possession of this joy. We're talking about the joy of the Lord. Remember Nehemiah. Ezra said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Here, again, this topic comes up. It's the, the joy of the Lord, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Now he says, I want you, if you still got this imaginary screen with me here, you are going to abide in my love. And if you will abide in my love, you know what's going to abide in you. It's the very same Greek word that where he says remain. It's abide there. And so what is it that's going to abide in you? You abide in my love, keep my commandments. My joy will abide in you. And your joy, see it's two different joys going on here. My joy will abide in you and your joy will be full. The idea of full here is leveled off, crammed in. The greatest joy that you and I will ever know is when we have the joy of the Lord living in us. I tell you, when that really came clear to me as I was studying this text. Chills went down my spine. To think that the Lord is teaching us, you can experience the joy of Jesus. A perfect individual that walked the face of this earth and submitted to God in every way. Can you imagine the peace that he had in his life? Can you imagine the joy, the deep river of joy that he had in his life? Can you imagine the anchor that was in his soul? Can you imagine the rock that was in his life to know that he had that kind of relationship with the Father and then him say, I want my joy to make its home in your life. That's awesome. And he says, when you know my joy, because you have abode in my love, your joy is going to be full. If you're my age or older, you're going to remember the days of full service gas stations. You remember when you used to drive up and they'd come out and they'd clean your windshield and they'd pump your gas and... Now, this may sound silly to you, younger generation, but when I was a kid, every time we stopped at the gas station, I think to myself, man, I wish I could, I could clean a window like that and had a squeegee like that. Man, if I could just go over and operate that pump, that would be the coolest thing to be able to operate a pump. Because there was only a few guys in a whole town that got to operate the pump, and that was the few guys that worked at the full-service gas station. Nobody else got to touch the pump. Wow, that would be the best. Now think about, what does it mean when you pulled up and they walked up to the window? And, you know, that's back when gas was 40, 50 cents a gallon. And, you know, 
Five dollars? Eight dollars? I'll just fill her up. It's still eight dollars. Now, when you think about fill her up, and you drive away from the gas station, and you look down, and you only have half a tank. I'm going to stop at another gas station and, and try this again. And you pull in there and they come up to the window and you say, fill her up. And they pump and you pay enough. And you pull back out on the road and you still have half a tank. Is it possible to go through life stopping at all these stations, searching for how to fill up your joy? And not find it. I'm not picking on celebrities. I'm really not when I say this. It just helps us kind of see our, our human nature. Have you noticed what's become real vogue among celebrities in the last several months, the last couple of years? It's children. If you want to have a meaningful life, you need to have a few children. It doesn't matter if you're married or not. You just need to have a few children. You can have them. You can adopt them. It doesn't matter how you acquire them. Just have some children And you're going to find a meaningful life. Or get you a purse dog. Get you a little pet and carry around. Pay $500 for it. You're going to find real value in life. You're going to fill up your joy. Oh, and then the things that that we've seen for ages now, it's not just them, it's, it's us too. You know, it's possessions. I tell you what, if I could just go on a shopping spree and, and buy a wardrobe for several hundred or several thousand dollars, I'm telling you, if I could stop at that gas station and fill her up, I would be the happiest person in the world. I just need to pull in and get a few kids, and I'm going to find a meaningful life. I just need to find a pet that loves me, and I'm going to find a meaningful life. If I can just find a house that's the right square footage, I'm going to have a meaningful life. If I can just drive into the dealership and get exactly what I want, I'm going to have a meaningful life. And we're going to pull into these stations. And we're going to say, fill her up. And we're going to get back out on the road. And we are going to have that hole in the heart that is bleeding. And we're going to be saying, where is the joy? What is wrong with this picture? There's only one thing. And it's the joy of the Lord that we find when that joy abides in us. Notice this. It fills our joy. And friends, I've got to believe this. Nothing else fills my joy. Nothing else will fill your joy. We can search for it all day. And all life. And we won't find it. Until we find the joy of the Lord. And what's interesting. Is when we think about the joy of the Lord abiding in us. Because we abide in the love of the Lord. Which is keeping His commandments. That means our life is supposed to be a blessing to others. If you would be turning to Hebrews the 13th chapter. Hebrews the 13th chapter. In just a moment. We're going to read from there to see a closing principle that we need to apply to our life. And as you're turning there, I want to read to you a quote from Burton Kaufman in his commentary on John, 
uh, as we just summarize this thought that we're leaving. He says, joy, like the love mentioned in John 15.10, the joy here is not so much a subjective state of ecstasy as it is a state of spiritual serenity, much higher and more satisfying than a mere emotional state of euphoria. All such things as fun, pleasure, delight, happiness, gladness, etc. are on a lower level than the joy promised by the Lord. And because of the way we've studied this, I'd urge you to see that first, all of those are on a lower level than the joy of the Lord. And so naturally, it's going to be on a lower level than the joy we experience because we can only find our joy in the joy of the Lord. In Hebrews, the 13th chapter, we see a powerful passage that deals specifically with a certain relationship. And we want to make that point this morning, but I also want you to see that this deals with every relationship that we experience in principle. Notice what he says in the 13th chapter, verse 17. He says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. So he's talking about uh, elders, and, and they have a responsibility to look over us, and, and they actually will give an answer, an account for how they do care for our souls. But notice now, the next sentence is all about us. Now, it's easy for us to think, well, this next sentence is about them too. This next sentence is all about us. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. You see, if it was about them, it would say, let them do so with joy and not grief, for that would be unprofitable for them. You see, what we're learning here as we blend these two passages together, what we see is that when we abide in the love of Jesus and we keep His commandments, the joy of the Lord abides in us. And our joy is so full because of our submission to God that we respect what He says. And we are sheep that bring pleasure to those that rule over us. But the truth is, we'll bring pleasure to a lot of people in life. Friends, if my co-workers describe me as a pain, I've got a leak in my Christianity. The joy of the Lord is not there. If my family sees me as one that makes them miserable. I've missed the joy of the Lord. If those that care for my soul in the church family, if I break their heart because of my rebellious living, I've missed the joy of the Lord. Let's close by reading first. Corinthians, the first chapter. First Corinthians, the first chapter in verse 10. We have a beautiful summary to how an entire congregation of, of eight or nine hundred people can experience peace and unity and joy because we find it through God's way and not through our way. First Corinthians 1 and 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, That you all speak the same thing. How can we all speak the same thing? That there be no divisions among you. How can we all be collected in, in unity and not divided? But that you be perfectly, or in other words, completely joined together. How can this happen? By this way that has two elements. In the same mind and in the same judgment. The mind has to be the mind of Christ. The doctrine of Jesus Christ has to rule our life. It has to rule the life of this congregation. 
But there's going to be a lot of things that don't fall under doctrine that have to be judgment calls, opinions. When are we going to meet? What are we going to do about facilities? What are we going to do? And you could list a thousand things. Those aren't doctrine. What are we going to do? Go by your opinion? My opinion? Everybody else's opinion and we'll be splintered 800 ways. The only way we can have unity is to respect the judgment of our elders, which is the government that Jesus designed for the church. We follow the Lord in doctrine and our elders in judgment. And that's when a congregation finds joy. This morning, if you don't have the joy of the Lord, make sure that you don't leave here this morning without it. If you want to be baptized into Christ, it'll be the beginning of a life of joy that passes understanding. If you have been baptized into Christ and somewhere along the way you've lost the way, this morning would be a wonderful time to return to the joy of the Lord. Let that be your strength. If we can help you